A good Thursday morning to you. It is November 18th. This episode of Real Talk is presented by our good friends at Bitcoin. Well, they've, they've just made an announcement this morning. This is hot off the press as Bitcoin Well announcing the addition of over 100 new Bitcoin ATM machines. 100 new ATM machines as part of an expanding partnership with Rapid Cash ATM. It represents exclusive operations of Bitcoin ATM software on all Rapid Cash machines that are capable. This is a big deal, big expansion for our friends at Bitcoin Well. Of course, they're Canada's first publicly traded Bitcoin ATM company. I had a chance to check in with them yesterday. We're proud to be working with them and super excited for this big announcement. Congratulations. You can find more about what they do at Bitcoin Well by checking out the sponsors page on our website, ryanjesperson.com. Real Talk starts right now. Here's Ryan Jesperson. This is going to be one of those shows that moves fast. <laughs> Sarah Hoyles and, and I have both kind of like, we, we've, we've tried to stack this show today just because there's a lot to talk about. So in just a second, we're going to talk to Mike Duggan, uh, who's been driving truck for about 40 years. Uh, a long haul driver. He's uh, currently stranded among, uh, I mean, it's got to be thousands of other truckers, at least, let alone travelers, let alone everybody else in B.C. Uh, amid extreme weather, massive flooding, of course, major damage to highways and, and, and rail infrastructure, for that matter. Mike's going to join us. I wonder if he'll be in the cab of his truck. I don't know. They're going to try to figure out how they can get rolling again. And of course, as crews are working to get those highways cleaned up and start the very beginning stages of repair. In about 25 minutes or so, we're going to be talking to Todd Lowen. He's an MLA. He ran and won as a United Conservative MLA. Uh, he was a Wild Rose MLA before that, by the way. But but he's been booted from the party. He was caucus chair. You remember Todd Lowen? He was the other UCP MLA that was kicked out the same day that Drew Barnes was. Well, Todd's essentially... Uh, I don't know, he's, he's issued a formal complaint. He's written a letter to Alberta's elections commissioner uh, because he says that something stinks. Something stinks leading up to the United Conservative AGM this weekend using third party, you know, PACs, political action committees, you know, these third party advertisers. Um, they're funneling funds. The allegation is by paying for the AGM fees of people that are friendly to the premier, to Jason Kenney. Now, why does this matter in layperson's terms? Well, basically, Jason Kenney is staring down an oncoming train. They've got these constituency associations like ridings. They need a minimum of 22 of them to sign on to trigger a leadership review. They think that the premier is damaging the party, arguably, or I guess their biggest fear might be beyond repair. In other words, they're going to lose the next election. And so these CAs, these constituency associations want a leadership review. Well, well, Kenny's working. These PACs are working. He's saying, what? Me? It's nothing to do with me. Uh, we're going to ask Todd Lowen today if the premier can be believed on that. But we'll also ask him, why did he reach out to the elections commissioner? What does he make of all this? I'm expecting a great interview. That's coming up in about 25 minutes. We're also going to learn about the future of Alberta's oil sands. What could bitumen beyond combustion look like? In other words, we talk about this just energy transition. What does it mean for the environment? What does it mean for the economy? What does it mean for workers? We're going to get into that today, too. Plus, they call her her deepness. Dr. Sylvia Earle, when it comes to ocean science, when it comes to conservation, she's, if not the biggest deal, one of. 
Uh, she's National Geographic's explorer in residence and oceanographer, and she's the author of Ocean, a Global Odyssey. She's going to be joining us in about a half hour's time. Really looking forward to that conversation. I have about a thousand questions for her. We'll get to as many as we can. We present Eat Your Words today, which will have a federal political angle to it, and we're going to learn more about when you should consider firing your psychotherapist. This is based on a new film that's just been released on uh, it's Apple TV, right? The streaming service, Will Ferrell, Paul Rudd, this movie, The Shrink Next Door. So we're going to talk to therapist Mara Brotman. Before we get into this, Hoyles, though, we want to keep an eye. I know that a lot of parents, not just parents, but a lot of parents of young kids, in particular kids aged 5 to 11, are keeping a very keen eye on rumblings that Health Canada is getting set to approve Pfizer BioNTech's COVID-19 vaccine for kids 5 to 11 as early as tomorrow. Yeah, it's looking like tomorrow. Um, there are multiple sources being quoted, uh, being cited by the Toronto Star. So the, those are rumblings. Uh, the, the Pfizer BioNTech, they actually submitted for approvals back on October 18th. And so hopefully, fingers crossed, this means tomorrow. And then, then it looks like we'll have lots of doses, around 3 million uh, pediatric doses are expected in the coming days. You know, this has been huge for a lot of families that, are, that have been waiting for this to happen. And of oh, course, this, this is something... right here is so excited. Is that right for your? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I, I, we've never like asked totally about your family, family dynamic. You've got I know you've got at least one nephews about is he about 12? I've got or is he uh, under 12? I've got yeah, I've got one teen nephew. Yeah, now he's 13. Sure. And uh, everyone else is below that. Uh uh, yeah, younger than that, I should say. Okay, good stuff. So you care. I mean, a lot of people care. Oh, Teachers yeah. care. Parents, grandparents. I mean, a whole bunch of people do. And so that's a story that we're following. And of course, we're going to uh, know as early as tomorrow. I wonder if it might happen when we're doing the show tomorrow. If not, that's something we'll be talking about again on Monday. Before we get into our conversation with Mike Duggan, uh, trucker stranded in BC, I wanted to remind you that our question of the week this week is up at ryanjesperson.com. Uh, it's pretty easy to find right at the top of the page qotw there it is i am putting out the call we want like thousands of you to chime in on this because it's kind of a special edition next week november 23rd we celebrate one year of real talk we've got an amazing show in store uh, we told you a couple of days ago malcolm gladwell is going to be joining us defense lawyer marie heinen is going to be joining us those two interviews are going to be killer let's be honest we said should we book a third and i said well i don't know who's going to stay i mean you know i mean there's a few people maybe but i think these two interviews are going to are going to steal the show we're also going to get into your response on the highlights and the low lights your hot takes over what you've thought about real talk your favorite episodes, the ones that frustrated you, maybe stuff you've always wanted to say to me or, or then along the spirit of along the lines of mean tweets, maybe a trash talk focused on me. We're going to have some fun with it next week. But to do that, we need you to participate right now. So you can go to our website, ryanjesperson.com, click on question of the week. And of course, we'll present the results next week as we inch toward our one year anniversary tough to believe one year already november 23rd although someone said to me yesterday i was talking to one of our partners and they, and they go it's only been a year it feels like it's been way longer so i guess it depends on your perspective i think the pandemic helps with that though because i feel like time is either like it feels real like things are really long but also it was just yesterday so same thing with That's real very talk. true i saw somebody yesterday said how long has it been he goes well it's got to have been a minimum of almost two years yeah and you go right it kind of feels like this bizarre this kind of blip on the radar that's going to represent this two-year time period when it's all said and done you know the show doesn't happen without the support of our amazing sponsors and we're really excited for our friends at the outdoor institution 
formerly known as Campers Village. Congratulations to them on a beautiful rebrand. The store now Breathe Outdoors. Still the source for all of your outdoor outfitting needs with all the top brands like Icebreaker and Kuma, Mountain Hardware, Yeti, Osprey, Patagonia, The North Face, Smart Wool, and more. You can check them out online at breatheoutdoors.ca. Maybe, maybe you're not a camper. You know, maybe, maybe you're a paddler or maybe you love to get out snowboarding or cross-country skiing. Maybe adventure travel is your thing. Maybe, maybe your big time outdoors every single day is walking the dog. Breathe Outdoors has the gear you need to make the most of your outdoor experience. And don't forget, if you spend a minimum of $30 in store at Breathe Outdoors, you drop my name or Real Talk at the till, they're going to hook you up with a beautiful Breathe Outdoors ceramic mug, a minimum $30 purchase. Also, a big shout out to our friends at Friesen Brothers. Yesterday, it was a huge celebration as Charlie, their sourdough starter, turned six. And we were getting a whole bunch of messages from people, from Real Talkers, that were saying, hey, hey, check this out. We, we popped by Friesen Brothers and, and we were able to pick up some, some Friesen Brothers mother dough, sourdough, and of course, everything that came along with it. What about this one from Simone? I loved Simone's tweet. She drove from Sycamuse to Drayton Valley via Highway 5, Highway 16 to avoid mountain passes. It took Simone 11 and a half hours. So she was able to stop in at Friesen Brothers in Hinton to grab these treats. Look at her. She's rocking her Real Talk vinyl sticker on the back of her Benzo. And of course, she's picked up her Friesen Brothers Peace River Sourdough. a girl, Simone. That's a job well done. Friesen Brothers, 16 locations across the province for more than 65 years. Alberta grown and Alberta owned. Well, we talked to uh, Julie Van Rosendahl yesterday about the supply chain and, and food implications of this horrific flooding in British Columbia. Many different angles to cover, including the supply chain, including goods to be transported, not just from the port of Vancouver across the country, but so many other items that move. It's the type of thing we take for granted. We don't think of how many trucks travel those highways of course, across British Columbia, Mike Duggan has seen it all, I'll bet you, as a long haul trucker for the last 40 years or so. He calls Alberta home, but he's currently stranded in B.C. amid this extreme weather, this massive flooding. Mike, kind enough to join us live on the show this morning. Mike, thanks for making time for us. Where are you right now? Good morning, Ryan, and thanks for having me. Uh, I'm sitting in the parking lot at the SO in uh, Barrier, B.C., Okay, so uh, just about four, about forty miles from Kamloops. And and when did everything kind of go sideways for you? I mean, what was your plan over the last week or so, and when did it specifically get interrupted? Well, I got home to Calgary uh, on Saturday uh, and was reloaded with fresh pork from Lethbridge going to the port in Vancouver, uh, intending to leave Monday, which I did. Um, I knew that the south route through Highway 93 was uh, in bad shape because of the storms there. I also had a heads up about what was going on in the lower mainland and the Coke and the Fraser Valley. But nonetheless, my uh, my uh, dispatch, my company owner asked me to come out anyway. Uh, we didn't anticipate as to how bad this was going to be. So I set out the north route, uh, came up Highway 2 and then out Highway 16 to Edson spent the night in Edson and then out to Barrier, where I've been sitting since uh, 
the day before yesterday. I got here about four in the afternoon. And Mike, you're there because uh, people can follow you on Twitter, by the way, at VE6DPA. We link to it in our tweet that Sarah sends out every morning. Uh, Looks to me, I mean, it's just truck after truck. How many truckers are there with you? How many rigs are there? Well, currently, uh, it it comes and goes at night. It's very full. Uh, There's been as many as 40 trucks here, although the lot... Uh, what you're seeing, that's in front of me, that shot. And then the other shot is uh, looking at our trucks sitting on the left there. That's my truck on the extreme left. But uh, we've been here, uh, uh, it, it comes and goes, and guys are still trying to go to uh, Kamloops, uh, although I've got a friend, a uh, company worker that's in Kamloops, and he said there's between 2,000 and 2,500 trucks there. There is zero parking in Kamloops. 2,500 trucks stranded yeah, in Kamloops. Yeah. It's hard to imagine yeah. even when they do get the highway reopened, if and when, uh, well, the type yeah, of traffic they'd be talking it. about. This is it. We're looking, uh, you know, this is not a short-term thing. The Coquihalla is done until next summer. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, and uh, the Fraser Canyon, I don't know if you're familiar with the area they call the Snake Pet. Uh, it's down along the water, and it's really narrow. There's concrete walls on both sides. Um, that's gone completely. The highway is gone. There's nothing left there. Something that's been there for 100 years is gone. Um, so, you know, this is not going to be a, a quick fix. Uh, it's going to, and right now it's snowing here in Barrier, and uh, they haven't they really had any uh, winter up on the Coke or in the canyon. Thankfully, the canyon, yeah, there's a canyon there. Thankfully, the canyon uh, doesn't get a lot of winter. So perhaps they'll be able to do more there, but they've got a lot of concrete work to do, a lot of uh, roadbed work to do. It's just a, a monumental task. I don't know as to how they're going to be able to achieve it in any short time. So, Mike, right now, what has you stranded? Is it, is it the fact that the highway is impassable? Is, is that the impassable? Is, yeah, there's there's zero zero routes to the coast. Uh, the only the only one that was left was 99 to Pemberton. Uh, and uh, Lillooet, but unfortunately, or Lillooet to Pemberton, but unfortunately, that's not really a truck route, and there are some really, really tight corners there, uh, and some very steep grades, up to 15%, uh, just not conducive to trucks. I'm so glad uh, you made that point, Mike, because you've got, I mean, truckers, you in particular, talking to us today, have such a unique perspective on the roads, and that's something that the average civilian wouldn't think about, that just because a highway route can open, that doesn't mean it's appropriate for big rigs. No, absolutely, absolutely. And I mean, even the Coquihalla, uh, you get down to the south end there above uh, where the Great Bear Snowshed is and uh, the Zopkias, they call it Zopkias or Yak Mountain. Um, I refer to that as the Bermuda Triangle because regardless of time of year, you don't know what you're going to be dealing with weather-wise. So, Mike, do you have a a, a trailer full, obviously a refrigerated trailer full of pork right now? Absolutely. I have 25,000 kilograms of fresh pork uh it's about minus 1.3 in the trailer okay so, and how long can you yeah. keep can you keep that cooled forever i mean if you have to sit here for a week and a half two weeks is that I provided mean, provided i've got fuel uh and then there's there's uh, the other the other uh factor that may become an issue all of the fuel that comes to bc comes from port moody so with the highway being closed that's going to cause uh, redirection of fuel perhaps from alberta out here because that's going to be the next uh, 
stumbling block. We're going to run into a fuel situation. I know in talking to the store owner here this morning uh, at the ESSO and also talking to uh, uh, another one in, in Barrier proper, um, they're starting to run out of stuff uh, because they rely on the coast as their supply. How are everybody's spirits, Mike? Like when, when you talk to other truckers, when you talk to people that are involved in the transport industry, what's the what's the vibe you're picking up? For, mo- for the most part, everybody's good. We've had some good conversations. Uh, I have a co-worker sitting next to me in his truck. Uh, he got here ahead of me, and he, uh, we, we've we uh, enjoyed our evenings. Uh, we had caviar the first evening with, uh, with beer, and then last night we had wine and chicken, so a nice Australian Chardonnay. So we're, we're doing okay. We're doing the best we can, you know. Um, how, how many times, it, Mike, are you the guy that crushes caviar in the, in the cab of his truck on a regular basis? No, but, 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 but Misha does. Misha's from Ukraine, and he loves okay. caviar. He's got a, a real whack of it with him, so yeah. Yeah. So, hey, you yeah. just you just got to know the right people. You you tweeted Absolutely. actually. We're seeing a lot of uh, of acts of kindness uh, for for not just truckers, but for a whole bunch of people, stranded travelers as well. Tell us about the sick community in Kamloops. You tweeted about this fresh cooked meals. Yeah, absolutely. The first night I got here, the sick community from Kamloops came here uh, with fresh cooked meals for everybody, came and offered. I graciously declined because I, my wife uh, in Calgary, uh, she's Filipina and she cooks, Ria Bell cooks everything for me. Uh, so I, uh, uh, I don't have to worry about food, although the, the larder is starting to run low as I've been on the road longer than I normally am. So therefore, uh, I'm going to have to start relying on the store or restaurants and that sort of thing, which generally I try to stay away from. Mike, so. if, if, you, if you're going to explain this, I mean, as best you can, this is this is an opinion question uh, okay. to the average person that says, I mean, you, you, you paint a pretty stark reality. You say the Coca Cola is not going to be ready for for major travel for probably, you know, the better part of nine months or so. And you look at some of the devastation, and I think it's implied. It's obvious. I mean, that highway is one of the routes that has sustained major damage. What does this look like? What does this mean for the next year or so? And when we talk about availability of goods, when we talk about supply chain, when we talk about maybe people's items arriving from overseas in time for Christmas, when we talk about big picture, what do you think the next three, six, 12 months looks like? Well, first and foremost, we have to get one route open. I, I suspect, given the minimal, I say minimal in, in quotations, damage to the uh, Hope Princeton Highway, Highway 3, that is likely going to be the first thing that opens. And what I'm hearing on the road here is perhaps as early as Saturday, although I've not heard that from the government. But moving forward, that is going to be our own or only route. And as us older people remember, that used to be the only route other than the Fraser Canyon to the coast. So uh, having said that, uh, we've got an incredible amount of truck traffic out here, rail traffic. Rail traffic's not moving either. Uh, I talked to a guy from CN. Uh, they've got three to four miles of track that's hanging in the Fraser Canyon. And that's the only rail access to the coast, to the rest of the country. So... Uh, trains are staging all over. Um, I've seen some go through here, barrier, but I think that they're just staging in Kamloops and going down the canyon as far as they can. Um, so this is a, uh, it's like Armageddon almost, uh, you know, insofar as uh, the economy is concerned. Well, you, you've uh, been trucking for 40 plus years. Have you ever seen anything like this before? No, no. I thought last summer was bad when uh, we were dealing with forest fires and that. Uh, but, uh, <laughs> 
it's uh, it just, you know, you're waiting for the other shoe to drop, and perhaps this is the other shoe has dropped, you know. What so, is it, Mike, what does I, this mean if you, if you speculate? What do you think this means for the trucking industry? Is this, I mean, are, are there implications within the industry with people's job security or availability of drivers? Well, if anything, it's probably going to put more of a demand on us, particularly with railway and stuff like that, because these things have to move. Uh, my boss, uh, I talked to him yesterday, and uh, a couple of our suppliers in Alberta have inquired about Prince Rupert and going up to Prince Rupert because all of our traffic, all of our truck traffic is containers, uh, containers coming from uh, coming from overseas. Uh, we supply a lot of uh, uh, supermarkets in Calgary, and uh, and then conversely, we, we ship uh, fresh pork and fresh fr- and uh, frozen French fries overseas so uh they may have to look at prince rupert as a uh, as an option uh you know for truck traffic but unfortunately that highway up there in the winter is not a great place and uh you know that's going to present a whole host of issues for for everybody but uh regardless the goods still need to move the economy still needs to move you know so yeah i, I don't know uh, that's way above my pay grade but i know that uh that there's a lot of sleepless nights right now uh, for a lot of people. But, yeah, well, I mean, I'm even just trying to think of like one, tr- like I don't know wholesale price of pork and I, I don't know all that kind of yeah. stuff. But if you, no, I you don't said, either. You no. said you got 25,000 kilos of fresh pork, mm-hmm. so that's approximately 50,000 pounds. I think yeah. it's, it's probably safe to say that it's at least, is it $5 a pound? Probably more. Probably. I don't know. If, if, it, if it's $10 yeah. a pound, you've got a half a million dollars of pork in the back of your truck um, that I know you'll do everything to, to that you can to make sure that it doesn't spoil. But that's just one truck. That's just one load. I mean, that's that's yeah. going to provide some perspective here, I think, for people with regards to, I mean, there's so many things that are at stake here. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, it's, it's uh, you know, and, and, and uh, Misha next door to me, he's got the same load. So now let's let's make that fifty thousand kilograms. There you go, a million uh, bucks or and, so. And I, I've got tr- I've got a truck sitting in Kelowna. I've got a truck sitting at uh, at uh, Sunshine uh, Creek down by Princeton, stranded. I've got we've got trucks stranded all over, and that's just us. We're a small outfit. We've, we're only uh, uh, seventeen trucks, you know. So yeah. it's very much a family operation. Yeah, so. It doesn't sound that small to me, but I guess in perspective, yeah. it probably is. Mike, yeah. uh, listen, I mean, it goes without saying, we wish you all the best here. I mean, I guess it's just the waiting game right now. We think of the crews that are doing cleanup and early stage reconstruction right now. I mean, everybody kind of rallying here. Uh, once you do get rolling again, we'll wish you a safe journey, Mike. And thanks so much for making time for us today. Thanks very much, Ryan. And congrats on the show, the anniversary there. Uh, I've been following all along and uh, yeah, especially with Sarah joining the team. And I hear Sam's chuckles in the background when his mic is off. It's always good. Yeah, no, it keeps it keeps us happy on the road. Let me tell you. Yeah, Hi, Sarah. Yeah. No, I, uh, I, I we really enjoy it out here. Absolutely. So. Oh, Mike. Well, that makes our day. Yeah. We've got our associate producer, Emily, in the house with us today, too. So thanks, oh, Mike. Awesome. I did. Yeah. 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 Oh, yeah. The, Take te- care. the team is constantly growing. Thanks. That's Mike. Duggan uh, checking in from uh, well from the cab of his truck stranded in BC 2500 trucks they're saying stranded in Kamloops that's that's just in Kamloops I mean the you know the highway one washed out in about five different spots highway 11 washed out in three spots highway five the Coquihalla just demolished including exit 202 between Hope and Merritt everybody knows that stretch of the Coquihalla if you've driven it flooding mudslides on highway 7 highway 8 highway 99 basically on all the highways 
and we appreciate Mike for giving us. I mean, that's like a that's like a first person perspective. It, you can kind of lose your focus, I think, when there's big stories, twenty five hundred trucks. You don't start to kind of do the math and go, well, how much cargo is that? And what's the dollar value of that? And what does all this mean? In just a second, we're going to find out more about what the future of Alberta's oil sands could look like. Uh, MLA Todd Lowen joining us in, in five, ten minutes. We want to remind you really quickly right now that our friends at McBain Camera currently have their holiday sale going on. You can check them out online at McBainCamera.com. That includes the Rico holiday sales, the brand new GR3X is in stock and available for just $12.49.99. That features that new 26-millimeter GR lens that achieves sharp imaging with high resolution and high contrast. Those are the qualities you want for the best possible photos. Uh, you pair that lens with that 24.2-megapixel APC or, or that APS-C format sensor, a brilliant, compact camera with unrivaled image quality. This is the one you want to take with you on the road, on your trips. And McBain has extended their 30-day price protection guaranteed to December 24th all the way through to Christmas Eve so you can shop early with confidence. You don't have to worry about whether or not the price is going to drop after you buy. Why not buy today? Visit one of their six convenient Alberta locations or you can live chat with a McBain team member right now at McBainCamera.com McBain, create to inspire. Our friends at the Edmonton Symphony Orchestra want to remind you that Arrival goes tomorrow night, November 19th. This is a spotlight on living composers, and it includes the Windspear debut of the piece composed by the annual Young Composer Project winner. Every year, a student's writing piece performed at Symphony Under the Sky. This concert also features poetry recited by Edmonton's new Poet Laureate. You can find out more about Arrival. That goes tomorrow night at windspearcenter.com. And don't forget, the promo code REALTALK gets you 10% off your concert tickets with the Edmonton Symphony Orchestra at windspearcenter.com. Well, this is really cool. You know, we've been talking about a just transition and what that means when it comes to energy and the environment and the economy. Uh, Brian Helfenbaum with Alberta Innovates, the executive director of Advanced Hydrocarbons there, kind enough to join us this morning. He's been well, for the last 20 years or so, working in industry in a variety of engineering and innovation roles, they've got a white paper out now. It was announced just about 10 days ago that shows that bitumen from Alberta's oil sands can be repurposed to create a new industry based on advanced materials that could significantly reduce greenhouse gases. Pretty interesting stuff for a region of this province that has had great significance to the economic activity and employment of Albertans and Canadians across the country. Brian, thanks for making time for us and welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Uh, this just transition idea, is that kind of what's been driving this research? How did this come about? This is something we've been working on for about five years now, and it's both looking at the value add opportunity that's there because we can create significantly more value out of our natural resources by turning them into materials instead of fuels. It's also being driven more and more now by the drive towards net zero, uh, which is both an industry as well as a global initiative. And so we can also drive down our emissions at the same time and spring up entirely new industries in Alberta. It's a very exciting and compelling opportunity. Uh, people can check out this this paper themselves at albertainnovates.ca. I've got to ask you, right? It says, you know, bitumen beyond combustion, it says on the title page, how oil sands can help the world reach net zero emissions. People are going to go, huh? 
I thought I thought to get to net zero, we had to leave it all in the ground. How does this work? Yeah, I, I appreciate it. it. May sound like like blasphemy to some uh, that the the pathway to net zero could include Alberta's bitumen, but there's three different ways that this can really make a significant difference in our emissions. Uh, number one, eighty um, percent of the emissions that we associate with oil happen at combustion, right? So as much as the, uh, our upstream operators have done a lot to reduce emissions, the majority of the of the issue is really when the fuel is used. And so by diverting our bitumen away from making diesel and gasoline and jet fuel and more towards materials that we're going to need in the future, then we're reducing emissions at combustion. On top of that, based on the products that we see ourselves being able to make with bitumen, we can make them with less emissions than they're currently being made. So carbon fiber, as an example, um, our projections show that we can produce carbon fiber with less than half the emissions as current carbon fiber is made. We can also make it much cheaper. And if we can make it cheaper, it'll start getting used in more and more things. So to take the carbon fiber example, you know, you might have it in your hockey stick, your golf clubs, your bicycle, but it's a pretty specialty material. If we can reduce the cost, it will start being used in vehicles which can make our, all of our vehicles, whether they're powered by, well, gasoline or, or electric, uh, 25 to 30% more energy efficient. We can use it in materials and, and infrastructure, housing, and, and these structures will last far, far longer than they do today. So there's this huge follow-on effect, a downstream impact of being able to use these advanced materials. Brian, how far away is the industry from this being a thing? I mean, is, is this six months or six years or 60 years? So it depends on the material. And so the answer is a bit of all of the above. So I'll say at one end, you've got asphalt binder, which we currently produce in Alberta, but it's got a very local regional market because you have to ship it um, hot. And so that really limits its, its market. But we've now proven that Alberta derived asphalt binder is among the most premium, the top quality asphalts in the world. And there are technologies underway right now. There's a handful of, of companies working on pelletizing it so that you can ship it longer distances and overseas. And we've been starting to reach out to our US and Asian markets to try to do that. So the asphalt opportunity is more near term. Carbon fiber is probably five to seven years away from being a commercial reality. And that's probably the biggest overall opportunity in terms of value add. And then we've got activated carbon, which is also near term. That's probably three, four years away, but it's more of a niche opportunity. And then you've got things like graphene, right? Graphene is a pretty sexy material. Right now, the market is tiny, but we expect it to be massive in the decades to come. So Brian, that's a longer term play. If somebody's working in the oil sands right now, do they have the skills, uh, probably the training uh, to be able to transition into this new approach? I mean, what are the employment or job implications of, of some of these possibilities? Yeah, so what this does is it allows us to continue to produce bitumen and even, even potentially expand production. And using new extraction techniques, we can do that and still reduce emissions. What we're talking about with these materials is basically a new manufacturing industry. And so there will be some transferable skills, but in, in many ways, we're starting something new. So part of what Alberta Innovates has been working on is developing our internal capacity. You know, carbon fiber is an example. That industry doesn't exist in Canada. It's, it's dominated by the U.S. and China and Korea and Japan. And so we've been working with the international community to bring in some of that expertise so that we can build up this, this new industry potential. 
fascinating stuff, Brian. And I suspect the conversations are just getting started, uh, prompted by this white paper. People can check it out themselves at albertainnovates.ca. That's where Brian Helfenbaum is the executive director of Advanced Hydrocarbons. Thanks for making time for us today, getting our brains working. We appreciate it. Thank you very much. You got it. MLA Todd Lowen coming up in just a moment, formerly caucus chair for the United Conservatives, now sitting as an independent. He was in touch with Alberta's uh, chief electoral officer yesterday. First, I want to remind you the show happens because of sponsors like the team at Eden Landscaping. Whatever your vision, they'll execute it with precise attention to detail. It's why they've been earning the return business and the referrals of customers for more than 20 years. They're family independently owned, full service landscaping from excavation all the way through to finished project. The majority of your landscaping will be handled by their team, but they've also got strong relationships with skilled trades. I know that Mike and his team there are really proud of that. So if you've got additional construction needs, you're going, yeah, we're going to work on this. We want to do put in some like edible garden boxes and maybe an outdoor pergola. And we want to, we want to put together a great outdoor cook station, but we'd also like to do this, this, and this. Eden Landscaping for more than 20 years have been solving problems and bringing outdoor spaces to life. You can check them out online today at landscapeedmonton.ca. Speaking of family owned, same deal goes with local waste. You can connect with them today for a bin in Edmonton or Regina. They operate across both provinces, Alberta and Saskatchewan via localwaste.ca. Construction, commercial and residential waste and recycling collection. Maybe it's a one-off. Maybe you're doing a basement purge. Maybe you're renovating your house this winter. You need a bin for a week or a month or a few months. Or maybe you're a business owner that would like to improve the service you're getting from your current service provider local waste will compete for your business i've seen them do it localwaste.ca is where you can reach chris and lauren and mikkel and don't forget local waste presents trash talk every friday here on the show you can send us your vents to talk at ryanjesperson.com well in our neck of the woods in the province of alberta this is a story that everybody's paying attention to the united conservative party's annual general meeting this weekend involves an initiative to pursue an early leadership review in other words more than 20 constituency associations in more than 20 ridings across the province have indicated they'd like to see the premier jason kenney's leadership reviewed ahead of schedule ahead of april of 2022 Well, things are happening behind the scenes, including funding from third party advertisers, political action committees or PACs to make sure that some folks, Kenny friendly folks, have their fees paid for the AGM. It's also alleged that this money is going to be funneled into the party. It prompted a pretty striking letter from conservative backbencher MLA Peter Guthrie and a letter to Alberta's chief electoral officer from our next guest he's the mla for central peace notley he's the former caucus chair for the united conservatives now sitting as an independent after he was kicked out of the party back on may 13th todd lowen it's great to have you on the show thanks for making time for us and welcome and thank you very much appreciate it have i characterized this accurately i mean did you take issue with anything no, actually, you summed it up very well. Obviously, this was inspired by a letter from an MLA to the Premier, which ended up, uh, of course, circulating around. And, of course, now it's in the, the media sphere, too. And, uh, and of course, that's what inspired my letter to uh, the Chief Electoral Officer, Glenn Resler, 
to investigate this and uh, and come up with some uh, I guess some guidance on on whether this is uh, legal or not and if it's in fact not legal then uh, to investigate and, and find the facts in this case. Todd is your head still spinning a little bit when you hear somebody like me say you know the former caucus chair of the United Conservatives former United Conservative MLA you know kicked out of the party does it still throw you for a loop? Yeah, I mean, it's, it is, uh, of course, a, a little hard to get used to, but, uh, but of course, I'm feeling good uh, with uh, the direction that I'm uh, in right now. Obviously, uh, uh, being a UCP MLA right now is not an easy job going out and defending uh, Jason Kenney and his actions. So, so obviously, I feel pretty comfortable in uh, the role I have right now. Can you, my constituents. Yeah, you, you've not obviously been in caucus meetings um, since May, but up until that point, how would you characterize the dynamic of the party under this leader? It's, a, it's obviously a, a one-man show. I mean, uh, that was uh, one of the most frustrating things. And then, of course, when I sent that letter asking the Premier to resign, that was uh, after two caucus meetings had been uh, cancelled in a row with uh, very little to no warning. It was uh, it was frustrating to uh, to see how little regard the Premier had to caucus and caucus input. And I think uh, that, uh, and, and of course, uh, obviously, as caucus members, we, we have constituents we have to represent. And I felt that I could uh, no longer represent my constituents properly under the leadership of this Premier. How what went into your thinking, Todd, to to publicly call for the premier's resignation? I mean, how many things had to happen behind the scenes for you to take that public stance? Yeah, obviously, that it was something that uh, built up over time. You know, I spent the the, the previous year. Uh, trying to change things from within and trying to have my voice and caucus heard and uh, trying to influence uh, change in the government direction. But obviously that was uh, to no avail. Uh, I think uh, many caucus members and cabinet ministers, cabinet, cabinet ministers feel exactly the same, that they have no influence on the direction of government. And uh, it isn't something that just happened in, uh, in a few days and everything, but it did come to a point where I realized that uh, in order to represent my constituents, when I was out of my constituency, people were telling me over and over again is uh, that this guy's got to go. Kenny can't continue to lead this province. And of course, since uh, May 13th, when I sent that letter out, uh, things have gotten substantially worse. So uh, obviously the, the feeling is even more widespread uh, within my constituency and across Alberta. Todd, your, your history when it comes to conservative politics in the province goes back at least, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, at least until 2008 when you first ran uh, for the Wild Rose Party. You, you were successful ultimately uh, in, in serving as an MLA for the Wild Rose Party. And then, of course, you beat you, you, you unseated Mark McQuaig Boyd, who was the NDP minister of energy and taking back that seat for central peace notley you were one of 18 mlas that signed that letter essentially calling for the premier's covid restrictions to better reflect regional realities uh you were one of those prominent 18 that signed that letter and and, and it's got a lot of people wondering uh, with this if you'll pardon my laziness here the so-called right-wing faction of the united conservatives and then the so-called progressive faction of the united conservatives both unhappy with the performance of Jason Kenney as leader. Do you still believe that a united conservative party can function properly in Alberta? Yeah, I think it's still possible at this point. Uh, obviously, the, the, the leader needs to change, and I think that would make a dramatic difference. Uh, I think there's got to be lots of char- changes uh, within, the, within the structure of government and within the structure of the party. And, and uh, hopefully we can get some of those changes at the AGM. Obviously, the, the premier has his uh, finger in every single part of the party business and every single part of government business. And uh, I think the, the frustration is great uh, within caucus, within cabinet, and uh, the frustration is uh, obviously great within Albertans too. Will you be at the AGM this weekend? Yes, I will. And what are you expecting there? Well, what I'm hoping is I, hoping I can uh, 
you know, obviously connect with members across the province. And I'm, I'm hoping that, uh, that uh, the, out of the AGM will come a, a willingness and a, a desire to, to make some changes and make the changes as fast as possible in order to, to save this party. I think if we don't uh, get, get on this right away and make something happen and, and create a dramatic change, then I think Albertans uh, that have already lost their trust in, uh, in the UCP and Jason Kenney that that uh, trust will continue to erode and uh, that'll be to the destruction of the party. So under a new leader, would, would your intention be to rejoin the party and sit again as uh, in caucus? Yeah, yeah I, w- I would have no problem with that. I think uh, we need to have a new direction and everything, and uh, that can only be done uh, under a new leader. Again, I, I think the trust of Albertans has been lost, and regaining that trust uh, with this premier, with this leader, is is impossible. We're talking uh, to MLA Todd Lowen. Sorry to cut you off there, Todd. Uh, your letter uh, from a couple of days ago to, to Glenn Ressler, who's Alberta's chief electoral officer, you say, I'm writing you today seeking guidance on a matter of urgent importance. You say it's come to my attention. Uh, third parties have been accused in a letter by an MLA, you're talking about Peter Guthrie, of actively offering to pay entrance fees of chosen supporters to attend the UCP AGM held uh, coming up this weekend at the Great Eagle Resort near Calgary. You say, while the letter itself asserts that this transfer of funds between third parties and the UCP may not be illegal, but is certainly unethical, you write, I find the legality of this matter to be less clear. You then go on to outline your concerns and, and people can find that letter. I tweeted it out yesterday. So did you. The premier was asked about this. And uh, I want to get you to respond to this, Todd. Here's what Jason Kenny had to say yesterday. Very specifically, I know you did it at caucus, I've been told. Could you respond to the allegations, including but not just that one, but including that one? Well, it's interesting you're being told about things that allegedly happened in the caucus, uh, Rick, because that's supposed to be confidential. But uh, the answer is I'm not involved in third-party organizations, uh, but third-party political organizations are free within the law to be involved in uh, politics. And uh, my understanding is that, for example, delegate registration fees are not considered a contribution, but I would uh, expect and insist that any group uh, carefully uh, acts within uh, the regulations. All I can tell you, as long as I've been involved in politics, I've known, for example, youth delegates, often constituency associations, provide support with uh, delegate fees. Uh, Organizations have supported the attendance of youth delegates who can't afford to go and things like that. That's hardly new. I think it's conventional in most parties. uh, And I would expect fully that any organization involved is carefully following all of the relevant rules. What's your response to that? Well, I think that's a, you know that that's a good way to kind of spin his way out of that one. But obviously, you know, when we look back to things like the Kamikaze campaign, that was uh, furnishing money, where money was uh, given to uh, individuals from individuals that weren't able, individuals and organizations that weren't able to give money to politics, and uh, that's obviously a, a rule that's called furnishing money. It's under 34.1. They uh, That was obviously found to be illegal, and uh, people were fined with that with the, in the Kamikaze campaign uh, for the leadership uh, race. And also under 4141, there's, there's rules against uh, third-party uh, individuals contributing money to the, the administrative activities of an organization like the political party, the UCP. And uh, one of the, the chief administrative activities of, of the party is to have an AGM and to elect a board of uh, directors. And obviously, if uh, third party advertisers or, or PACs are allowed to uh, influence that and put money in towards that activity, uh, I think that uh, clearly out- outlines that it's against the law. We, we had a situation where just recently an MLA was charged from the last election for using a, a private business to, uh, to uh, help in the campaign. 
and uh, that was found illegal too. So it isn't like any of these uh, allegations are are unusual, and uh, it isn't like they they haven't been uh, fined for just in the recent past. So I think this is uh, something that if if this isn't dealt with appropriately, then I think it opens the floodgates to to do what uh, you know what what isn't uh, what isn't legal what wasn't uh, intended to be legal especially if we look back to the uh, the NDP brought in electoral reform uh, back when I was in opposition uh, that was something that was widely supported by opposition and of course government and uh, th that was taking the corporate money and uh, union money out of politics and obviously if this door is open then obviously then we could have situations where these political uh, packs these political act activity uh, organizations and unions could start putting money in, into the political sphere again and of course i think that's uh, that's was the intention of that law that was the spirit of that law that was passed uh, in the legislature and i think that needs to be respected going forward uh, todd I've, I've got an next guest locked and loaded here so i'm gonna have to thank you for your time but let me ask you quickly in closing do you support or would you support brian jean's assumed leadership bid here for the united conservative party well, Brian Jean has uh, has a bit of a uh, work ahead of him as far as, uh, first of all, he has to be nominated uh, in the UCP, and he's seeking that nomination now. Uh, that'll be up to, the, of course, the people from uh, Fort, Fort Mac, uh, Lac La Biche, and uh, they'll be making that decision. I respect whatever decision they make, and then, of course, there'll be a by-election, and uh, if he wins the nomination, then it'll be in a by-election, and uh, the people of that constituency will make that decision. So, but would you back um, him if he, were to, if he were to get over all these hurdles? Would you back him if he, were, if he sought the leadership? I have no plans of backing anybody right now for leadership. I haven't made any decisions on that at all. I, I expect that uh, there'll be many good leaders that'll uh, come forward, and I'm looking forward to seeing who does that. Okay. Todd Lewin is the MLA for Central Peace Notley. Thanks for doing this. I appreciate it. No problem. Thank you. You bet. National Geographic Explorer in Residence, oceanographer Dr. Sylvia Earle in just a second. So excited for this conversation. We want to remind you that if you're traveling south, if you're going somewhere hot, this winter now is a perfect time to book your airport parking at jetsetparking.com whether it's the non-stop service from edmonton to san diego that you're taking advantage of or somewhere else if you go to jetsetparking.com right now you can pre-book your parking at edmonton international airport up to the end of 2022 that's right till the end of next year you can book it now and the promo code real talk means you're going to be able to park there for five dollars a day that's five dollars a day what to park at the airport why not i mean to, to me it's like five dollars a day i mean there's a lot of people you park places when you travel it's fifty dollars a day five dollars a day jetsetparking.com they're locally owned and you'll love them speaking of people that i guarantee you're gonna love jake kubiski the ceo at kubi energy he and his team have been providing solar energy solutions to power people's lives in alberta and british columbia for coming up on 10 years now based out of edmonton and kamloops they've got a team of tesla certified solar installers all of them are either ticketed journeymen or apprentices which means you can have full confidence that the job is being done right you can check out their products and services get a free quote today by visiting their website kubienergy.ca and don't forget you can send us an email with a, a random act of kindness maybe something somebody did to pay it forward or make your day kubi energy presents positive reflections every monday morning here on real talk 
What a thrill it is to welcome to the show one of the world's literally top experts on ocean science and conservation. Dr. Sylvia Earle is the National Geographic Explorer at Large. She's got a new book, National Geographic Ocean, A Global Odyssey. Dr. Earle, I am a scuba diver. I am a casual photographer. I love being in the water. And you, my friend, are an absolute legend. I can't tell you how much it means to have you here on Real Talk. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me on board. How does one rise to becoming the National Geographic Explorer in Residence? I mean, your journey has been a remarkable one. It's good timing (laughs) to come along at just the right moment when it was possible to explore the ocean the way we now can to be among the first to enjoy the, the experience of breathing underwater using scuba and to also be in at the beginning of developing technologies to live underwater, to use little underwater robots. And what I really love most of all, to be able to take little submarines and go deep in the ocean, taking a little capsule of air along with you the way, the way astronauts go high in the sky. You I want to provide some background for our audience, for people that may not be familiar with your legacy. I mean, you're the president and chairman of Mission Blue, uh, the former president, the former chief scientist of the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. You you were called by Time magazine, the first hero for the planet. New Yorker magazine calls you her deepness. (laughs) What is all that stuff? I mean, do you still every once in a while kind of pinch yourself and go, what a career it's been? I think the best is coming. You know, the past is always prelude and there's so much more to be done. I think the biggest discovery in the 20th century about the ocean is the magnitude of what we don't know. We've taken the ocean for granted and believe that the ocean will take care of itself no matter what we put into it or what we take out of it. But now we have the evidence, the laws of nature are waking up, waking us up to the reality that the ocean is in a state of decline, both in terms of of the, the chemistry of the ocean and, of course, as on the land, the temperature is changing as well. Yeah, I want to ask you about that. I mean, we see we see sort of these gut wrenching realities, whether they're big oil spills or whether they're these floating plastic islands or so many of the other. I mean, a lot of the fishing quotas that I think are decimating a lot of the populations of of fish and other ocean life. How would you how would you assess or I'm asking you a massive question right now, obviously, but how would you assess the current health of our oceans? Not good. Hmm. I think the positive side of this current state, this moment in time, is we now know the problems we face and we have the power to do something about it. Imagine if we didn't know and we continued to do what we've always done, to take, 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 and use the ocean as a dump site, thinking that it's too big to fail. But now we have the evidence. It's really in trouble, so we are in trouble. That came into clear focus at COP26, the climate discussions about how the ocean, the chemistry of the ocean, is life in the ocean is really a key factor in what we're now seeing with climate change. And we also now see we can do something about it by embracing land and sea with enhanced understanding and greater care. The idea of at least 30% of the land and 30% of the ocean safeguarded Think the carbon cycle, 
It sounds pretty nerdy, but it's carbon, carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, in methane, in the emissions that we are increasing through the burning of fossil fuels, but we're also destroying the natural carbon capturing and sequestration systems, the forests and life in the ocean, clear-cutting the ocean of life. You mentioned industrial fishing is a problem. It is. And knowing that that is part of the solution to really understanding and protecting the systems that have taken hundreds of millions of years to get to a place that is just right for us and to restore what we can of this amazing diversity of life, mostly in the ocean. That's what I tried to illustrate in the Global Odyssey book with National Geographic to dive in to the issues that we now face, not only what the problems are, and not only to celebrate the splendor of life in the ocean, but to figure out what we're doing to affect the ocean, how the ocean affects us, and what we can do to, to go from this time of decline that I've experienced in my lifetime as a witness and to celebrate what we can do to turn things around and to tell the stories of dozens of other explorers, scientists, you know, even businessmen who have changed their career and become explorers, like Victor Vescovo, who's descended to the deepest parts of the ocean and taken others along with him, like Kathy Sullivan, skywalking astronaut, now has gone to the deepest place of the ocean, thanks to the technology that now exists and the generosity of an individual who said, come on, I want you to see what I have seen in the deepest ocean. Dr. Earl, did you, when you talk about salvaging or restoring or healing the oceans, I mean, you mentioned COP26, and, and I know that there was some progress made there, at least on a commitment side. Some people may be cynical based on what they've seen in Kyoto and Paris and elsewhere, but, but what would be one tangible step that you hoped to see? Or if you could introduce one policy or stop something right now unilaterally, what would it be in the best interest of the oceans? Follow the carbon, blue carbon. That will lead you to the decision that industrial scale fishing on the high seas needs to be stopped because our existence is, is really on the line. What we do or what we fail to do right now in the next 10 years will have a magnified significance throughout all of, of our history. It's going to get harder and harder to reverse this to recover and find stability, which is really the goal, protecting what exists of old growth forests. They're critical to the carbon cycle, to, to the climate issues, the old growth systems in the ocean, from coral reefs to the deep sea manganese nodules. We need to secure them, hold them in place because they hold us, our, our planet in place and to understand those connections. We know this is the best time ever in the history of life on Earth because we know the, the, the magnitude of the problems we face, and we also know there are things we can do to resolve those problems. Hmm. I'd love to ask you about your career trajectory. Uh, I mean, you know, oceanography has certainly been your life's work, but back in the 1970s, you were told that you could not join a crew of men uh, that were testing via an undersea 
laboratory. Can you can you take us back to that period of time and how you persisted through to to wind up where you are now? Well, the head of, pro- of the program, James Miller, was really the key. When faced with the question of should they or should they not include women, they didn't expect women to apply. No women astronauts had been accepted into the space program at that point. But he said, well, half the fish are female. I guess we could put up with a few women. (laughs) And it worked. They wouldn't let the men and women work together as a team. And there really were comments like there could be hanky panky on the reef. I mean, come on. (laughs) But it's true. They were they social acceptance of having men and women living together underwater, just not not going to work. Later, men and women went up into space, and they're still doing it. And men and women go everywhere together, even living underwater. But the first time, I've done it now 10 times, but the first time was just a team of women. And we had a great experience. And I think demonstrated, and we were told later that it really helped foster the acceptance of women as astronauts, because we we not only had a great time, we, we were highly successful in as scientists and engineers in doing what we were there to do and dispelled some of the myths that women couldn't handle it. Absolutely fascinating stuff. Uh, I'm going to ask you a completely unfair question here in closing, and that is over the course of your entire career to try to nail down one experience. Have you had one experience in the ocean that surpasses all others? with regards to the impact it had on you personally, or is there way too many to choose from? Ryan, I'll tell you, it's out there. I'm going to do it one of these days. The most important thing is on the horizon. <laughs> I love it. Well, I'm going to have this on my bucket list. Maybe you and I can dive sometime, Dr. Earl. You can teach All me right. a few things. That would be pretty incredible. Congratulations on the new book. It's absolutely stunning. If people are looking for that perfect gift for somebody that can appreciate photography and can appreciate the wonder that lies beneath. We'd certainly recommend it. People can learn more uh, by checking out the website that we've pushed out. Ocean, a global odyssey. There it is. Our guest, Dr. Sylvia A. Earl. Let me read you this in closing from an audience member who's watching live. Escher says, uh, Dr. Earl reminds me of Carl Sagan with the way that she speaks and how she talks. Such a brilliant mind. I am unworthy your deepness. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks, That's Doctor. Exciting. There you go. That's Dr. Sylvia Earl, uh, an absolute legend, by the way. Uh, amazing stuff. What a career. People are talking on the live chat about the perspective here with regards to blue carbon. A lot of people saying that I've never even heard about that before. Scarlett says her outlook is incredible. Hoyles, what do you have there in front of you? You're completely distracted right now. No wonder. Look at this thing. Sorry, what? That arrived. Uh, it was shipped to us, and I thought somebody had sent us like a suitcase or something. I was like, <laughs> what is this book? The photography is incredible. Oh, it's gorgeous. Yeah, you're hanging on to that forever, aren't you? Yeah. Yep. Yeah, that's fine. Stelly <laughs> says, <laughs> Stelly says, I love her. I remember when it arrived, the first thing I saw it, I, I was like, yeah, I'm not getting that. There's no way I'm taking that. I'm not going to be able to get that. Lisa says, maybe I should add that to my hypothetical Christmas book. Sharon says, that'd be a great book for my kids Christmas. There you go. You never know when you're going to plant that seed, right? Where it begins with somebody that I, I remember interviewing Chris Hadfield way back in the day. And, and you ask him about, you know, you, you, you rise to prominence as the commander of the International Space Station. But where did it begin? 
you know, and for him and his story, it's on the family farm uh, in Ontario, if I remember correctly. But he's on the family farm and he's like laying on his back, looking up at the stars and just wondering, just thinking, just imagining, just dreaming. And what would it be? I guess 50 years later or so, there he is commanding the International Space Station. Playing a guitar. Playing a guitar. Ground control to Major Tom. How did you get into scuba diving? Well, uh, we were traveling South America after university, me and some pals, Los Toros, we called ourselves. And uh, yeah, we were down there for about six months, just under six months and and knew we wanted to get certified. Wanted to do two things, learn to surf and learn to scuba dive. Mm. And so uh, we did. And uh, yeah, it's been pretty special. You you learn the, the skills, the basic skills to just get in the water. Right. And then you can go from there, depending on how you kind of want to customize your abilities or your capabilities to get certified to do certain things so um you know so i've been like t- trained to like dive with with you know night trucks for example you can d- dive deeper for longer you can with night be- trucks night trucks it's like a it's like a uh how do you describe it it's just a different mix oh it's like t- for breathe like oxygen yeah, yeah mix? exactly okay. yeah it's just a different mix so I mean, do we have we have time for story time? Can I tell some? So, if if you've ever been down to Maui, uh, it's it's just a phenomenal place to dive. And there's this place called the Molokini Crater, and it's uh, it's essentially like, and I'm probably wrong technically on what it is, but it's it's basically like an underwater volcano, except for part of it is up above the water. So imagine like a volcano that comes up, and the top of the volcano, there's half of it, this sort of crescent moon shape, poking out of the water. Well, it's created this phenomenal ecosystem underwater that is is just one of the most special places uh, that I've ever had a chance to dive. But on the back, it's called the Molokini back wall. It just drops and it's it's called a uh it's it's like a different type of dive what do they call it a pagogic dive or something i'm probably mispronouncing it but it's not like angelfish and puffer fish and 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 all of these sort of the the amazing underwater critters that you typically see in like a reef this is more like humpbacks and e in like the it's it's like the open ocean population right it's a totally different experience but when you're diving the molokini back wall you're just looking down like hundreds of meters it's just straight down is this hard for you to listen to? So you, so the difference you, so when you dive the Molokini back wall, you want to be able to go down as as deep as you safely can. Uh, but at the same time, divers know that if you're down at 40, 45, 47 meters, you know, 130, 140 feet, you can only typically be down there for like 10 or 12 minutes. Why? And because well, just because of the impact that it has on your body, and because of how much time it takes you to come up, and right. and all of the things. And uh, so, if you dive on nitrox, you can stay down there longer. You can stay deeper longer. So I, we were down there, and I was like, I got to dive back wall. So you go and you get certified to dive on nitrox, and now I'm I'll have that forever. Back I'm going back wall. But now it's cool because like any other hobby that anybody has, I love that we talked to Doctor Earl for ten minutes. Then I'm going to talk for ten minutes and. <laughs> I am definitely not the National Geographic Explorer in residence. I'm definitely not, uh, you know, even I can't hold a candle to her. But um, but it's cool now because when you travel, you know, we'll always want to travel places where there's great diving. Mm. It just becomes this hobby that allows you to see. So I've dove in, I don't know, 10 or 12 countries, something like that, just because it's such a, a neat way to see a different part of the world. Like the ocean is. I heard somebody describe scuba diving once is as close as the average person will get to walking on the moon, you know, Mm. just a completely different surreal experience 
when we were diving Molokini back wall, the humpbacks were singing while we were diving. And I just have I, I had chills just rolling down my back while I was diving. Like, it's just the most special. I mean, I understand scuba diving is not for everybody, but for me, it's uh, it's I mean, it's, it might be my favorite thing on planet Earth. That is I mean, to me, the idea of the vastness of it is what is so terrifying. Yeah. That's what I find so terrifying when you're talking about like you can just look down and it's vast. I'm just like, what's out there? Yeah. That's what terrifies me. I've enjoyed snorkeling quite a bit um, on the Great Barrier Reef and uh, out in Hawaii yeah. area and on, off of Oahu and it was amazing. But I get like at a certain point, I start getting the heebie-jeebies and I start being like, I gotta get, I gotta, I gotta get out of the water. Yeah. So I cannot imagine having that vastness around me. It terrifies me. Oh, I'm, I'm trying to do a quick search here right now. Brenda says we need to have a day of Jespo's pictures of these adventures. I'm going to see if I can call it up quick, but I don't think I can. I'll probably have to do do a deep dive, if you will. Uh, but it might take me a little while to track them. I'd be happy to share photos sometime. It's 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 been a little while. You can always follow me on Instagram at Ryan Jesperson. I'm always finding ways to just plug my social platforms. Right? <laughs> follow me on Twitter. Follow me on Instagram. You know how it goes. Um, but yeah, diving special. I can understand. I mean, some people are chiming in right now saying, "Not for me. That is not my thing." And and, and I get it. I get that it's not for everybody. But uh, I'll tell you here. What do we have here? Oh, this is a, this is uh these are old photos. These are from 2008. <laughs> you can, I think my Facebook account is open. I don't know. I never even go on Facebook anymore, but these are just some photos of, uh, that I took this people on the podcast are like, okay, this is officially hit the like, but, uh, yeah, this is uh Malkini creator. So these are some photos you can go check them out on my Facebook and I have other dive photos there. And look at that little fella. Look at that. Look little at that. Tortoise. Hey, no tur- turtle. Turtle. Yeah. There you go. Uh- um, our friends at St. Albert and Sherwood Dodge want me to remind you that while supply has been an issue for the last 14 months or so, that is no longer the case. As a matter of fact, the the issue that car dealerships across the country, and for that matter, across North America have faced through the pandemic, a lack of selection, well, that's far from the case right now on the lots at St. Albert and Sherwood Dodge, including that new Jeep Grand Cherokee L, I got word just yesterday that some of these Grand Wagoneers are starting to arrive. This is the big luxury class SUV. This is the Jeep answer to the Escalade and the Navigator and the Yukon Denali. You know all those ones? The Jeep Grand Wagoneer is touching down and available for test drive. You can go check it out if you can get your hands on one at Sherwood and St. Albert Dodge. I know a lot of people are really excited about those. Plus, the Ram 1500 starting at 61385 with low monthly payments on approved credit. You can search them online or you can go see them in person at Sherwood and St. Albert Dodge. Also wanted to remind you that our friends at the Dairy Queens of Northwest Edmonton and Sherwood Park have the Flamethrower Burger featured through the month of November. I was driving yesterday and I see this big, massive DQ billboard for the DQs of Northwest Edmonton and Sherwood Park. Have you seen the Steakhouse Burger? I mean, I know that I'm supposed to be talking about the Flamethrower Burger. Sam, have you seen the Steakhouse Burger at Dairy Queen? Seen it. I've, this I've thing, eaten one. I've enjoyed many a Steakhouse Burger. They are quite oh, fantastic. Oh, you yeah. have lived experience. There are, there are onion rings in the burger. Do you need to even say anything more? I don't think you need to say anything more. Nope. There's freaking onion rings in the burger. 
Okay, but the flamethrower burger has like the jalapeno pepper bacon and the flamethrower sauce and all that kind of stuff. But I mean, I'm sort of distracted by onion rings in the burger of the steakhouse burger. Get both. Why not get one of each? Yeah. You know, you get the flamethrower burger, you light your mouth on fire, you take a quick dip of that, maybe the Oreo fudge blizzard, or, or maybe you want to go with like a different one, like a, a, a Smarty blizzard. I mean, the in-house recommendations here vary depending on which Real Talk team member you talk to. And then maybe, I don't know, crush a steakhouse burger on the way home. People are like, really, man? Why make tough choices? Really? Why not just get it all? At the Dairy Queens of Palisades, Nemeo, Newcastle, Westmount, and Baseline Road. Could you do a steakhouse burger and a flamethrower burger and a blizzard? Or would that be... enormous. I'm thinking that's got to be... 3,000 calories. Yeah, that's that's a day's worth of food in, in two burgers. But I, I mean, like I power to you if you want to try. That sounds I amazing think, to me. I think I could do it. Yeah, I think not? I could do it. Now, where you get hung up on these types of things is the fries. You can't mess around. I mean, fries are great. Trust me. I've got all the time in the world for fries. But if you're going to try to take down a flamethrower and a steakhouse burger and mix in a blizzard, you're going to have to say no to the fries. It's like John Candy with the old 96er, right? You remember this? No. Great outdoors? No. Oh, my gosh. You eat the whole steak and it's free, but it's 96 ounces. It's like the, the hugest steak they call it the old 96er. And so he finishes. It's like one of the greatest scenes in movie history. And he finishes the old 96er, but he's still got the gristle. Like he's still got the fat and he's got to eat the sides. And that's where he got hung up. The things you learn <laughs> tuning into Real Talk. Every Thursday... We partner up with our friends at Prairie Catering, and, and I'm going to talk about Prairie Catering in just a moment, as a matter of fact, because I'm so excited. Their brand new restaurant opens tonight. Super exciting news for the team at Prairie Catering. But first, a reminder of why we partner with them and what they allow us the opportunity to do, which is every Thursday, invite someone on planet Earth to eat your words. Presented by Prairie Catering. Interesting goings on in Ottawa. This is just yesterday where Member of Parliament MP Brad Viz representing Mission Matsqui Fraser Canyon. You're going, that sounds like that might be like right ground zero where all this flooding and disaster is happening. You would be right. Well, he's out of a meeting. He's a conservative MP and he and his conservative colleagues went to meet with Liberal Minister Bill Blair. This is what we all like to see, right? I mean, cross-aisle, bipartisan efforts to do what's best for Canadians. So Brad Viss and his conservative colleagues are leaving the meeting with Liberal Minister Bill Blair, and reporters are there, a gaggle of reporters. And of course, they want comment on what we were talking about earlier. Conservative leader Aaron O'Toole kicking conservative, former conservative Senator Denise Batters out of the family for questioning his leadership. So the reporters are assigned to go get comment on Denise Batters and Aaron O'Toole. And, uh, well, this is what went down yesterday. You think Batters should have been kicked out of caucus? Right now, my only focus is on supporting the people of Mission Matsby Fraser Canyon in British Columbia. There's no time for partisan politics. Right now, there's only time to support British Columbia and get people, get people safe. That's, that should be your only question right now. The, keeping British Columbia safe the people need our help. They don't want to hear about a senator. They want to hear about what we're doing here today to help our province and to help our country. Effectively, the port of Metro Vancouver, are you guys aware of this? The port of Metro Vancouver is cut off from the rest of the country. We're talking billions of dollars of economic loss right now. We haven't had anything like this ever happen before. We, in British Columbia, 
we've heard for many years that we're going to have a big earthquake one day and our in the lower mainland could be cut off from the rest of the province well that just happened that just happened you kind of feel for the reporter because you know that probably their editor sent them out on assignments and said we're going to get mps including brad vis out of the lower mainland coming out of this meeting and we need a clip we need a quote Hopefully, he's going to take a big swipe at the senator, or maybe he'll take a big swipe at his party leader. Who knows? But we need him on the record. And the reporter's going, all right. So they show up and they do their job. And then there's Brad Viss, who's going, I'm hearing from constituents, and I'm taking a look at my stomping grounds, my riding, my constituency, and it is, like we heard earlier today, Armageddon out there. It's an absolute nightmare. Highways washed out. Railways washed out. I mean, thousands, I hate to say it, thousands of livestock, farm animals drowned. People being rescued. Air rescues by the Canadian military. I mean, this is a national crisis. You think that Brad Visk gives a flying about Denise Batters and Aaron O'Toole? Absolutely not. So I've been there. I've been the journalist that gets assigned to ask the tough questions. The family at the court case in the murder trial of the person that killed their son. Ask the family how they feel about it. How do you think they feel about it? It's a tough gig. I get it. But in this instance, yesterday, shout out to Brad Viss, who invited that reporter to eat your words. Presented by the team at Prairie Catering, who tonight... Thursday, November 18th at the Art Gallery of Alberta are officially opening their brand new restaurant called May for dinner service. That's right. Like the month. I had a chance to talk to Jimmy at Prairie Catering about the new restaurant May. I said, what's up with the name? He says, everybody celebrates the harvest, but nobody talks about when the seeds go in. Nobody talks about the beginning of the season. He says, that's what we're celebrating here. You can visit May at the Art Gallery of Alberta. And don't forget, Prairie Catering has been catering events large and small for many years. The best part about Prairie Catering is that they have seen the trends when it comes to people either comfortable gathering or not, and they're offering services for all scenarios. So whether you want to bring your company Christmas party to the Art Gallery and have Prairie handle it all, or whether you'd like them to Get meals to all your team members so you can gather virtually. They'll figure it out. You can contact them via the website, prairiecatering.ca. Today is a big day. It's a huge day. Because we got that as well as Marmot Basin opening day today. Opening day at Marmot right now. Yeah. I, I hear the snow's amazing there. Well, can you imagine? Yeah. Can you imagine? Like with the snow that we got a few hours away, of course. Yeah. But... We got a dump. So, yeah, in the mountains. Hello. Yeah, just a reminder, you can uh, check out these live cameras. Our, our friends at, at uh, Tourism Jasper were reminding us this yesterday in my Jasper memories. And, and of course, you can uh, check out jasper.travel slash real talk if, if you want to learn more about that. Uh, look at this 37 centimeters in the last three days. That's the snow report right now. You can check out skimarmot.com. Opening day is such a special day, hmm. right? I mean, these are people that have been, you know, you, you guarantee there's those skiers and snowboarders that have been like waxing and like sharpening their working on their edges for like six weeks now. They're ready to finally get out after months, those summer months. What did what did you say that you and Carrie do on your snowboards? Gnar? We shred the gnar. Shred the gnar. Yeah. 
Shred the gnar. Yeah, bruh. <laughs> I was going to I thought you were going to say talking about like the pow. You're going to go and get some pow. Yeah. Well, that's uh I mean there are many different ways to interpret the best type of snowboarding, right? Because there's the people that go in the parks, you know, do all, you know the, the, the kind of trick stuff, like Half the street pipe, style, da, da, all that da, kind of stuff. Yeah. And then there's just like the big backcountry, open, like big, loud, wide, fast turns. That's my style. Just, <laughs> I'm that guy. Yeah. So, which is different because when I was a skier, I was like bumps, like tight, technical, bop, 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 bop. Now in snowboarding, I'm just like, yeah. <laughs> anyway, I feel like I'm talking about myself a lot today. Your People your name is on the show. So I think that, that that's yeah. A-OK. Okay. okay, I'll try not to be too self-conscious about it. I'm, I'm, I'm curious to know how you're processing that conversation with Todd Lowen, uh, MLA out of Central Peace Notley. He's, uh, you know, sitting as an independent now, but he, he of course, was caucus chair for the United Conservatives, that's not a joke. I mean, he uh, he resigned that position when he called for the premier to resign, but he remained on as a United Conservative MLA until they booted him, him and Drew Barnes, back in May. And uh, I, I tried to pick his brain a little bit, and I'm going to go back and watch that interview again. I want to kind of digest what he was saying about the different factions within that party, right? Like I saw uh, Randy, who's watching the show today, uh, said, uh, okay, like when I asked Todd Lowen about, you know, the right wingers versus the progressives, and there's two different groups within the United Conservative Party that are upset at the premier, at Jason Kenney for his leadership for different reasons. And so Randy's observation was, so, they, so they're not upset at Kenny because he's terrible. They're upset at him because he's not terrible enough. That was Randy's interpretation of this, right? Uh, Todd Lowen and, and the 17 other MLAs that signed that letter were calling for these regional restrictions when it came to COVID-19. They didn't want province-wide restrictions when it came to vaccine mandates or passports or masks, what have you. That was a big flare-up when that happened, those 18 MLAs signing that letter. Angela Pitt out of Airdrie was another one that that certainly caught a lot of people's attention. She's not paid the piper. She remains in the party. So you have to wonder what it was about Todd Lowen and Drew Barnes in particular that got them booted. But again, he's not ruled out returning to the party under a different leader. He says his intention would be to go back. And I thought that that was interesting. He left things wide open. Yeah. I mean, saying that he's not necessarily going to support, talk about supporting Brian Jean, that, yeah, he left the door open around returning to the party. Um, what I thought was interesting, and it, uh, I'm not able to find the comment, uh, the specific comment in the live chat, but the idea that, you know, now he's taking issue with this money and what's happened potentially going to happen at the AGM but where where was he and where was that concern um when you referenced it the, the kamikaze yeah so we'll see what happens this weekend at the AGM you know there there's uh you know it's it's essentially Kenny stacking the deck right this this third party pack that's friendly to him uh, making cash available not just for people to you remember you you heard these rumors of of past party conventions where buses of people would come in and in particular young people they put them in the hospitality suite they provide pizza for everybody and then they go and go okay here's how you're voting on everything right and they kind of stack these decks and some people may say well that's politics that's how it works you organize you mobilize that's politics the interesting thing about this is that a lot of people are pointing out that the money and the cash trail here you know, the way that a lot of these funds go, it's it's more than you need to cover the cost of the convention and the extra overrun goes to the party. So it's an illegal way, allegedly, for this third party advertiser to funnel money into the party through the pack, through the AGM. And 
what's really interesting about this is that NDP MLA Thomas Dang talked about this yesterday. Opposition MLA Thomas Dang talked about this. But this is prompted by United Conservative MLA Peter Guthrie, who wrote the letter. I mean, the letter that apparently raised the ire of the premier for obvious reasons, where he basically said, I have huge ethical concerns about this. This isn't the way that it's supposed to go. And then this starts to leak. It starts to trickle out. You could feel the premier bristle, couldn't you? When columnist Rick Bell asked him that question, the premier bristles and says, well, isn't it interesting that you're hearing about things that are allegedly happening in caucus meetings, things that are supposed to be kept confidential? Well, the premier does not have control of his caucus. He doesn't have the support of his caucus right now. And so forget that confidentiality. People like Rick Bell and me are getting leaks all the time from people in the house. And that's one of the signs that this leadership review may not go Jason Kenney's way. You can understand. I mean, even this special resolution this weekend, I know we're getting in the weeds. And if you're not hardcore into politics, this might sound really boring. But basically, if they could get 22, there's 87 constituencies in the province, right? There's 87 ridings. There's 87 MLAs. If you can get 22 of them, of the governing party, 22 of them, Basically, it's about a third of the conservatives, right? right? They don't have all the seats. If you can get 22 and they all agree to it, you can trigger an early leadership review. Well, the premier or whomever is introducing a special resolution this weekend. They want to bump the number to 29. That's called moving the goalposts. And you have to wonder what type of a message that sends, not just to the general public, but to the CAs, to the constituency associations, to the MLAs. Where's your head at on it, Sam? I would be very curious uh, how the agenda stacks up for the AGM. And I say that because if before, because, I mean, this is how the other side works this thing, is if they can get, if the 22 constituent associations can get their resolution on the agenda above the resolution to raise it to 29, well, then it would pass because they've met the threshold as the rule was at that point. So I think that, like, there's going to be sort of weird jockeying for positioning on that kind of thing, too. But I mean, like, you know, like zooming way out. I mean, I'm sorry, Jason Kenny. you can you can play semantics and you can say to your party loyalists, let's let's move the goalposts. Let's make it 29, not 22. Let's do this. And it's like you're rearranging the deck chairs on the Titanic. That is what you're doing. You're trying to buy yourself a couple more months before you have to finally face your party. Yeah, but but those months can be an eternity in politics too, right? So if you're Jason Kenny, you're sitting there, you're going, you know, oil's at $80 a barrel. If we can get through this pandemic, if there's not a fifth wave, people have short memories when it comes to politics, which is true, mm. right? Then maybe you can save your skin. And so it remains to be seen. Of course, we'll be keeping an eye on what happens this weekend uh, down at the UCP AGM. In just a second, we're going to talk to therapist Mara Brotman, a registered psychotherapist uh, based out of Toronto. Um, We're basing this on The Shrink Next Door, which is a, a movie that's just come out. I saw the trailer just last night. In fact, I haven't seen it, but I saw the trailer. Paul Rudd, Will Ferrell. And the basic premise of it, what caught your attention about this one, Sarah? Well, just the idea that, you know, there's this relationship between the therapist and the client and <laughs> there may be some blurring of lines, which uh, not ideal, not ideal. So it's 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 all the things that you shouldn't do, but funny. So the focus of this conversation is going to be how do you know if you're in a healthy relationship <laughs> with your therapist or how do you know if it's time to fire them? Is That's that right. the basic how, jumping off point? And how you can talk to them about 
if you got concerns. Because, yeah, you know how sometimes you kind of feel like there's a, there's a power dynamic, maybe? Of course. Where you're like, I'm the client. I'm coming here for your help and your expertise and your insights and your feedback. But what if you've got feedback for your therapist? Is that allowed? Ooh, we'll ask Mara in just a second. First, I want to remind you about our Real Talk Wine of the Month. We are really excited to be partnering with, uh, well, a team that's a pretty big deal in the world of wines, in particular in California and the West Coast of the United States. Brewer Clifton is our Real Talk Wine of the Month for the month of November. Now, that team is led by Greg Brewer, who last year in 2020 was named the Winemaker of the Year by Wine Enthusiast. I've had a chance to... uh, experience Brewer Clifton wines. Hey, in the interest, the things I do for you real talkers to be able to provide you the firsthand account, because we want you to look good when you're bringing wine to a holiday party. Maybe you're gifting a bottle or a case to your staff members or maybe to somebody you care about. You want it to be wine that has the best bang for buck. Well, may I recommend personally the Brewer Clifton Santa Rita Hills Chardonnay and the Brewer Clifton Santa Rita Hills Pinot Noir. Those are two you will not go wrong with. I guarantee you they're absolutely fabulous. And if you have to if you happen to be shopping at Wine and Beyond, check out the exclusive Ex Post Facto Syrah. Syrah, in my mind, one of the most underrated reds. One of the most underrated varietals. I'm a huge fan of Syrah, but I always forget about it. I always go for the cabs, the zins, the, you know, I, I didn't come here to drink Merlot, but the Syrah doesn't get a lot of love. It gets over. Look, this one will knock your socks off. The ex post facto Syrah, an exclusive to wine and beyond. Make sure you ask for Brewer Clifton anywhere you buy fine wines. You are so selfless, Ryan. Hey, I'm just willing to do what it takes to ensure that everybody here has the information they need to make the wisest possible purchase they can. You're such a good human. I show up every single day for you all. I promise I will. Mara Brotman's like, what the hell kind of a show have I agreed to go on? She's a registered psychotherapist, qualifying based in Toronto, works with couples and individuals to improve relationships, to process climate grief. I'm looking forward to talking about that. Mara Brotman making her Real Talk debut. Thanks so much for making time for us and welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. Yeah, you're very welcome. I, I Just jumping off based on the bio, we'll talk about this film, The Shrink Next Door and relationships that people have with their therapist in just a little bit. But you specialize in helping people process climate grief. What's that all about? Yeah, yeah, that's all about um, dealing with the things that we can't change about the world and learning to accept it really. I mean, you know, it's really been bubbling under the surface for a long time for people about, you know, We see it on the news every single day. We don't know what to do about it. I mean, we have these horrible feelings that, um, you know, the planet is burning. Okay, so what? What can we do as individuals? And, you know, thinking about what are the emotional implications of that? Like, how do we process the deep anxiety, the grief, and still live our life and still take joy and have strong relationships within that? So, like, climate feels like it's underlying a lot of the more immediate emergencies that we're all feeling right now, you know, around the pandemic and within our regular lives. Yeah. Well, 
I, I don't know if you know this or not, Mara, but, but just before we talked to you, uh, we spoke with Dr. Sylvia Earle about half an hour ago. She's an oceanographer. She's National Geographic's, uh, what is she, the Expl- resident explorer of the year? She's got like, she's, her career is like unbelievable. Uh, and, and she's talking about the health of the oceans. And you can see it. Like, you can see it in her face. She's, first of all, loves the planet. That's quite clear. And gives a pretty frank assessment about the health of the oceans. Not good, she says. But there's this optimism I think she has uh, paired with urgency that we need to be able to do something. You know, as I'm talking to her, I'm realizing I feel this kind of almost a pit in my stomach. I I almost kind of wonder what human beings 150 years from now are going to think about the the way that we conducted ourselves and the way that we dumped trash in the ocean and the way that we just let these smokestacks just belch into the atmosphere and i think for a lot of people this can create an anxiety that they might may not have the tools to deal with yeah i think you're right on there that it does create an anxiety um and that we feel more stressed out than we normally would or our emotions are even closer to the surface than they would normally be like people are telling me you know i'm closer to tears than i've ever been i'm I'm more angry with my kids than i wish i were like i'm getting frustrated and it's because you know our energy is getting sucked by this the truth that, you know, the oceans are in trouble, the planet is in trouble. So, you know, what we try to do in therapy around that is, first of all, you know, deal with the emotions. How do they come up? What does it feel like to feel okay again? What what are the pillars of a meaningful life that we can build up so that your resilience is higher? And then also there's a piece of it there that's kind of new for me and for a lot of therapists is like, how do we translate those feelings into action? So what does it look like to get a little active about climate change? Are there community associations like what kind of um, activism can you engage in that actually feels right? You know, like we all we all live in the world and we still want to eat fish and go shopping. But how can we do that in a responsible way and not have it feel so terrible for us about the state of the world? You know, it seems like a lot of people are choosing not to have kids now because of the way the climate is going. But um, those of us who already do have kids need to have a way to really process those feelings and make sure that our kids are resist- resilient um, in their emotions, too. That's such a great point. Kaylin's watching from Vancouver this morning. She says, I wonder how we are to balance accepting what we can't change and still feel fueled to take action and participate in advocacy. How would you tell a client? I mean, I guess everything you're probably going to tell me, number one, when it comes to therapy, it's got to be situation specific. Every person's reality is different. Every person's MO is different. But how do you find that balance, accepting what we can't change while still advocating for what we can? Yeah, that that is the question, right? Like that is the the question we're all struggling with. So, you know, for me, I think that... um, staying trying to process the feelings of helplessness like trying to get away from helplessness toward action so to me anger can be a positive emotion more so than sadness or like a freeze response basically we're going through trauma and you know the old idea of fight and flight they've added freeze to as well as fawn which is kind of um like sucking up to people in power fawn, yeah Yeah, for a feeling of safety, right? So figuring out, you know, in Alberta, especially, like, why are we so wedded to oil and gas, like, emotionally? What, why are we holding on to things that are clearly not working anymore? And how can we get rid of that? So I'd say, like, harnessing anger into action and really making stronger ties to community, as well as taking joy in the very small things and then connecting again to your body. 
So these are easy to say, like I can, I can reel off advice, but it's hard to do. And yeah. it's hard for me as well. So yeah. just try to have a, like a practice where you really understand what you're feeling and then try to have close relationships with your community. It's interesting. Every once in a while we have this happen where we'll just have these common threads going through a show. Most times mm-hmm. unintentionally, uh, we were talking to a fellow a researcher earlier today who's talking about how how bitumen beyond combustion could be a thing to help drop emissions where Alberta's oil sands could continue to provide natural resources for things like carbon fiber, etc. I didn't see our live chat at the time. I saw it later. A bunch of people were like, this is greenwashing bullshit. And like not everybody is is 100 percent sold on the idea. But I do think other people might say, hey, listen, if we're trying to find that balance between environmental responsibility, economic activity and sustaining the job market, which sustains real estate and sustains everything else, then maybe this is the type of of direction we need to move in. I'm so intrigued by your comment about an emotional connection to oil and gas. I understand why a politician would bang that drum because politically it's very convenient to support certain industries. And we see the policies and the investments of the Alberta government in particular reflect just that. But, but among the general population, what what do you read into the emotional connection? And let's not just say oil and gas. We could say industry. We could talk about fisheries on the East coast. We could talk about forestry on the West coast and everywhere else. Yeah. Yeah. It's really interesting. I think there's, um, I think there's an emotional connection to, I don't want to lose anything. Mm. I don't want my quality of life to be worse. I don't want the quality of life for my children to be worse. This is what I know. I know that industry supports jobs, people's jobs. Um, And so I'm wedded to the idea or people are that this is how things have to be. And then maybe we'll find an electric car that'll be better. Or, you know, I think people are, emotionally want to find ways where we don't have to change our life too much or be uncomfortable. I mean, human beings are wired to avoid pain, of course, um, psychologically. And so, um, yeah, the connection to power is also an interesting one. Like this, the oil and gas industry, you know, all our extractive industries um, have a deep effect on what we see as like uh, success in society. And so tearing that down, it's like, then what? You know, it's the same as when people are talking about um, defunding the police. I think it's hard to answer the next thing of like, and then what? So we're emotionally wedded to, okay, this is the way things are and this is safe. So we're going to stay here. But for climate, you know, we can't do that. I didn't think that we were going to get into oil and gas and defunding the police. And this is absolutely amazing. I don't know where you want to go next on this. I mean, I, I don't want to make light of serious issues, but uh, I love it. This is this is like primo guest number one. You just hit things head on. I love it. Does that have to kind of be that's got to be a character quality, a professional quality that the therapist has to have? You, you've got to pull no punches. you got to say what you see, right? Mm, that's interesting. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think that's a quality that a lot of us who go into therapy have, or at least like we have to practice it as mm. therapists because you see people putting up defenses and um, wanting to believe things that keep them safe or things that have historically kept them safe that aren't quite working for them anymore. And so to really like investigate what was this doing for you, you know, in terms of people's reactions, in terms of um, whatever their coping mechanisms are around like mid thirties to late fifties, our coping mechanisms 
if we've been putting our head down and just getting through life, it starts to break down a little bit around that time. And, you know, we used to call it a midlife crisis, which was very gendered and very specific, but it's really like, okay, what was working for me in my twenties to just put everything away into a box and not think about it can't work for me in my forties. When, um, you know, if you, if you choose to have children, they test, they push every button um, and then relationship stuff comes up. So, uh, okay, to get back to your actual question. We don't um, have yes, to. I'm, I'm, I'm actually totally, I don't care if we focus this at all because I feel like we're just hanging out and having an amazing conversation. I actually, yeah, just pull me back, Ryan. You know, I'll put, no, but who cares? That's why people love Real Talk because we just, we just keep it real. We're just talking about things we're interested in. I've never thought of midlife crisis as a gendered reality or a gendered statement or concept except for the minute you said it, I pictured a guy with his shirt buttoned down low, reeking like cologne, driving like a brand new red Corvette. I mean, you, that's kind of what you think of, isn't it? Dating a teenager. Yeah. Yeah. Dating a t- yeah. Well, hopefully 18 <laughs> anyway, but I digress. Yeah. <laughs> right. But this idea of like, um, okay, I'm in the middle of my life. What do I want the next part of my life to look like? Or sometimes people's coping mechanisms break down of like, I just want to go back. Or I just want to feel the way I felt in my 20s. Life is very annoying and stressful to be an adult sometimes, even though it can also be, you know, beautiful and worthwhile. Um, so yeah, the midlife stuff is really interesting. That's when people start coming to therapy often. It's like when a relationship breaks down or when they're feeling like what I've been doing isn't working any longer. And I need someone to just be gently confrontational about asking questions of, you know, is it really working for me? Hmm. What can I do differently in my relationships? Mara, I've noticed, uh, this is an anecdotal observation, but I've noticed more and more people talking about therapy or my therapist or my counselor. And I think it's an amazing step. It's become normalized. Uh, do you see that with regards to the, the number of clients you take on or the health of your industry? I mean, are more and more people seeing therapists? They are, which is very exciting. Yeah, I've noticed that too, where, you know, I think, you know, when I was growing up, like when I was a teenager in the 90s, it was people who went to therapy were like kind of crazy, or you didn't know that many people who went to therapy and like the popular cultural conversation around it was like, oh, they have problems. So they need therapy, especially couples therapy, where people like wait way too late. And then they go to a couples therapist, like when things are already so broken, it's it's hard to come back from. Um, but now everybody's talking about it, like in casual conversation, people are saying, my therapist says, blah, blah, blah. Um, there's tons of great therapists on Instagram who are putting out content um, that really makes sense for people. And it's, you know, it's a way to decolonize therapy as well, like getting more voices in there, more therapists of color and indigenous therapists, like the field itself has changed a lot for the better um, and continues to. And we know so much more about neuroscience now about the relationship between how like the emotions affect our body and how the nervous system stores emotions in the body. So, you know, there's new science and there's new acceptance culturally, which is just beautiful to see. That's fascinating. Um, I guess this brings us around to, you know, when, when we talk about the relationship between the therapist, what do you say, client, the therapist and the client? Yeah, I call them clients. Clients, um, you know, and, and with regards to how you know if your therapist is a good fit for you, uh, I would imagine that the more that you talk about the different perspectives that, uh, you know, with regards to people that are practicing now, different mm-hmm. traditions, different approaches, there are probably some that are less conventional than others. How do you know if the therapy you're receiving or if your therapist is a good fit for you and, and, and what should be a red flag or two? 
Mm, yeah, yeah, that's a great question. I think, you know, it's, it's a co-created relationship. That's the fundamental thing. It's like you and your therapist are making something together. So you need to be able to know that they really get you. You need to feel safe, eventually safe and trusting with your therapist. So there's a lot of research research that has come out that actually, you know, within reason, the methodology of your therapist doesn't matter as much as the strong relationship you have between the practitioner and the client. So having feeling like it's a good fit is actually the most therapeutic thing, whether people practice like a psychoanalyst, a gestalt, you know, some um, uh, methodologies of therapy are like more play acting, which I'm not super into, but some people love, like, um, you know, you're actually acting out a conversation between, you know, like someone who died that you miss and being able to tell them uh, that's not so much for I, me. I, I mean, couldn't do that. I, that's not my thing. I couldn't do it. Same here, but it's called gestalt therapy. If anyone out there listening is interested, uh, you know, it's, it's a long running type of therapy, but um, yeah, it's all about the relationship. So because it's a relationship between client and therapist, you need to be able to speak up and make sure that you're getting the best experience. You know, it kind of replicates our romantic relationships and our family relationships. So giving you the tools, giving the client, the person in therapy, the tools to actually speak up, to be direct and to have a therapist respond um, allows you to take it out into the real world, world into your relationships. Like I, this is the place where you actually can feel trust for the first time. I mean, clients have told me that my office and the work we do together is the first place they've actually felt trust in another person. And now they can wow. have healthier relationships. It's pretty wild. It's very, it's a big responsibility um, and really amazing. Yeah. I just, I, I, I don't always do this in the middle of an interview, but something you said just like blew our producer back in her chair. And so I just have to ask, I'm looking through the plexiglass here. What was it about what Mara just said about families and the replication that, that, that sort of made a real, real impact on you? Well, just the idea that you're, that they're replicating uh, a relationship with a loved one. And that, like, that is deep intimacy. That is deep. Yeah. Like, well, hopefully, hopefully trust. And um, I've just never thought of it that way. Like, I just always was like, no, I am the client. They are the therapist. Yeah. Like, those are cl very clear boundaries and they should not, there should be no intimacy, like in a non-romantic, non-sexual sense. Yeah. You know I mean? Yeah. So Mara, that's not, that's not something you can just, I mean, does that take a little bit of magic to happen? Does it, is it sort of, uh, is it, it's not something you can just manifest, right? Yeah, all I can do is create a space for, to allow people to try to start trusting. And it takes time. You know, you know, I, I was telling somebody recently who had a very bad experience. You know, fair, sometimes people come to me with a bad experience with a past therapist. Um, and so that especially I'm hyper aware of like, it's okay if you don't trust me. We can still do this work together and that we will take the time for you to feel okay with the other person. Um, so, yeah, when I'm talking about replicating, um, you know, other intimate relationships, I mean, therapy is wild as a profession in some ways. Like it's an intimate and a professional relationship, which is like I as a as a therapist have to have a real frame around um, my own stuff so I can be there for the other person. Yeah. And they know that this is professional so they can show all the dark all, you know, the ugliest thoughts they have, the things they're most ashamed of, uh, you know, you get to really know a lot about people and that feels very special. 
But it comes with a lot of pressure, too. I mean, you know, how, how do you, you you don't just leave your stuff at work when you take off for the day, do you? I mean, don't you carry a bit of a load on your shoulders as the therapist? Uh, yeah, yeah, big time. Um, yeah, it's, uh, I do definitely think about my clients, um, outside of session and, um, you know, care about them a lot. And I, I do a lot of work on my own, you know, I'm also a client of a therapist, so Mm. I do a lot of work in making sure I maintain my own internal boundaries. The hardest thing has been something like, um, during the pandemic, when everyone is going through the same thing at the same time, including myself. So that was the hardest thing to control my own, you know, we're all in survival mode during COVID, we're all feeling life and death and not not sure about what safety is. And I'm feeling that too. So I have to be there to soothe other people while I'm definitely going through the same thing. Mm. Are you looking to psilocybins? I, I, you know, people may call them magic mushrooms. I mean, I see more and more of a trend, uh, people integrating that theory uh, or that practice into into their own self-care. And, and I know personally of people that have been microdosing or looking to psilocybins um, in, in an endeavor to improve their mental health. Is that on your radar? It definitely is. It's kind of the hot new thing. So it's it's interesting, like, there's been, there was a prohibition on research around it for so long that now it's kind of exploding in an exciting way. I know anecdotally a lot of people who are uh, microdosing on mushrooms right now. Um, therapeutically, there are some studies going out there. For me as a practitioner, I don't know if I want to get into like prescribing mushrooms for people. Yeah. Um, it's It can go a lot of different ways. And so that like, it's still so new that I'm not sure. Uh, yeah, I don't know if I want to be the one to go there with people. But honestly, it's fascinating. Like the idea that um, something natural can actually reverse it. I think it was like 23 or 30 percent of people who are experiencing deep, um, untreatable depression have been cured by yeah. um by psychedelics like that that's amazing so it's quite a new field i mean just like the last five years so but new um but but amazing. really interesting i mean i'll be curious to see 10 years from now or 15 years from now how it, uh, it's maybe had an impact on i was gonna say the mental health industry but that's mental health field let me say feels a bit more right so so we'll wrap with this because i know you've obviously got clients you've got a full day you've got to get to the, the film the shrink next door everybody's talking about it. it doesn't hurt that it's you know two of the most beloved actors i think in america right now uh streaming on apple tv you know will ferrell paul rudd mind who you let inside says the movie poster let me ask yeah. you this. Uh, you say that you've had people that have come to you that have experienced past trauma or at least, you know, had negative experiences with their therapist. They have fired their therapist and they've come to you. How do you know when it's time to fire your therapist? Right. So you can leave your therapist at any time for any reason. And I think sometimes people feel obligated to stay past a point where it's working for you. So I think the main thing is to check in with yourself first of, is this not working for me? Do I feel actually understood by my therapist? Are they asking questions that are helpful for me? Are they making me feel judged or guilty? Um, Are they making me feel like uh, the things I do are wrong? The tricky part is sometimes therapy um, can feel tough in, in sessions when you're opening stuff up that you really have put away for a long time. So, you know, I think the main thing is trying to work with your therapist, unless they're clearly a bad fit or telling you um, things that feel irresponsible. So that's something to check out with your friends and family with some trusted people of like, my therapist said that I should do this and that. I I just don't know. And, um, you know, get another opinion. But there's a lot within 
um, a healthy therapeutic relationship that's still like, you can feel missed. You can feel like they're not quite asking the right questions or they're not getting you. Um, and that's the part where you can really, that can be super effective to actually work with your therapist on. So like, I've been thinking about our work together and it's not working for me right now. So if you can be as specific as possible, that really helps therapists. But even if it's just a feeling like I'm not getting what I should be getting. I had that experience as a client when I first started therapy school. My therapist was very nice, but um, she wasn't challenging me in any way. Mm. And like, I didn't feel like I was getting much out of it besides talking to a nice person. And I wanted deeper. I wanted more. And yeah. I wanted to like really, you know, like rip things open. Usually people take a long time to come to therapy. Like they've been thinking about it for years. So when they start, they're pretty ready. So how you know is if you feel bad a lot about your therapist. Yeah. Yeah. My wife and I, this was, this is, I guess about 10 years ago, probably right when we first got married on the advice of someone they said, and, and, you know, they, they said to us like, this is, you know, don't, don't perceive sort of working with a marriage counselor as an indicator that there's a huge problem that needs to be fixed. It's just a great way to improve communication and to talk to one another and have a healthy marriage and to lay that foundation kind of thing. And so we're like, yeah, sure. I mean, like, let's do it. We're newlyweds. We want to, you know, make this last and, and, and raise a family and all this kind of stuff. And, uh, and I remember like after two appointments with this lady, I was like, I'm sorry. Like, I, I, I don't want to be the guy. I don't, I don't want to be the guy out of the movie. That's like the cynical about therapy and like, not, you know, not willing to participate in the kind of the deadbeat husband kind of thing. But at the same time, I was like, I just almost couldn't even take it seriously. It just, it's not that the practice wasn't a fit. I think that therapist wasn't a fit. Um, it, it just didn't work. And I think that that's going to be different for everybody. I'm sure that she's probably I'm obviously not going to say her name, but, she, you know, she maybe I should. Maybe I'll drag her after hours. Uh, but no, uh, you know, I mean, it's, uh, you know, for somebody else, maybe she's been brilliant. Maybe she saved people's lives. Maybe she saved people's marriages. Right. It's 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 uh, subjective. Absolutely. It's all about the fit. So yeah. really finding someone that you feel, you know, in therapy, like in we call it twinship and mirroring, but it's basically like someone who reflects back what you're feeling and then you, that you feel close enough to. There's a way that therapy is also reparenting. Um, so that is a whole other relationship. Like when we're, when your producer's talking about power dynamics, like that is a way where we need people to take ownership of their own feelings and not to totally rely on the therapist. But it sounds like you really felt in your gut like this is not for me and this person is not for me and that's exactly what you should go with and not spend too much time with someone that just you're cringing inside yeah, or yeah like, well no i was know. i was actually just trying not to laugh the whole time and that's just not good so i mean that's kind of interesting to explore like what about this makes you uncomfortable yeah. like talking about your emotions is awkward at first it mm -hmm. is like you do laugh out of discomfort like i was working with a couple last week where the guy of the couple said i feel like you really understand what my wife is talking about and you're not really understanding me and i don't feel like i'm being heard and i was so thankful that he spoke up about it yeah. because then we could focus on him and like me trying to really understand where he's coming from culturally and like his discomfort with talking about his emotions um so like you know it's a bit of a dance to work through your own discomfort but also know when someone's just not for you. I mean, like there are a lot of wonderful therapists and there are some ding dongs like in every profession. So you've got to find one that, that truly fits you. Yeah. Um, you have delivered. I didn't, uh, you know, I, I, I didn't really know where this conversation was going to go. And I feel like you and I could probably talk for six hours, but we yeah. both got to get on with our days. You can find more about what Mara does at marabrotman.com. Uh, a registered psychotherapist qualifying out of Toronto works with couples and individuals, improving relationships 
And, and again, the climate grief thing. What a fascinating angle. Mara, thanks for giving us your time. It's been a real gift today. Thank you so much, Ryan. You got it. Nice book in Hoyles. That was great. She's great. I love she's getting into like Black Lives Matter, defund the police, decolonization. I'm like, wow. And I mean, some I, therapists are ding-dongs. And some therapists are ding-dongs. <laughs> you know, there's a therapist right now being like, is she talking about me? she talking about me? <laughs> Our friends at Park Power want you to know. I'm not going to try to find some cute segue into talking about internet, electricity, and natural gas. Maybe not. They're an Alberta-based utilities company out of Sherwood Park, providing those three services to homes, businesses, and farms across the province. They're not your traditional corporate utilities provider. One of the things that makes them different, they're 100% privately owned, and they operate as a small business that essentially has a mandate to support the local economy. So 10% of their electricity profits, they donate to nonprofits. That's the founder of Park Power you're seeing right there on my screen, Chris Kazowski and his signature bow tie. Unbelievable guy. You know, we endorse companies that we believe in. We partner with groups we believe in here on the show, and Park Power is one of them. Don't forget, you can get your free quote. You can compare rates, the fixed rate, the variable rate, whatever you're looking for right now online. It's quick and easy. And when you switch over, they'll handle all the work for you. So it's, it's not you're not sitting on the phone for three hours with your soon-to-be former utilities provider. A reminder, if you're like Wax, Real Talker Wax, who reached out to me the other day, says our whole family's switching over to Park Power. Make sure you use the promo code 2021-REALTALK to get $70 off your first bill. Did you know that tomorrow is International Men's Day? Kind of an interesting approach, and we're going to dedicate our Real Talk Roundtable to it. So you're not going to want to miss it. It goes at 11 o'clock Eastern, 9 o'clock Mountain Time tomorrow. Our Men's Health Panel will focus on the mental and physical health of men in particular. We'll see where that conversation goes. Plus, a hand signal on TikTok saved a young woman's life. We'll learn more about it. What you need to know coming up on tomorrow's Real Talk. We'll see you then. Real Talk is hosted by Ryan Jesperson. Editorial producer, Sarah Hoyles. Technical producer, Sam Brooks. Managing director, Josh Dunford. Account coordinator, Tanya Franklin. Merchandise operations, Katie Cook-Chivers. Website design, Mike Johnston. Voiceover by me, Carrie Skelton. Real Talk's editorial board is Supriya Duvetti, Ahmed Ali, Anne Castleman, Corey Hogan, Julie Rohr, Harmon Candola, Catherine O'Neill, and Chris Henderson. Real Talk is recorded in Edmonton, Alberta on Treaty 6 territory, the traditional and ancestral territory of the Cree, Dene, Blackfoot, Salto, and Nakota Sioux, home to Métis settlements and the Métis Nation of Alberta. Real Talk is the flagship property of Relay Communications Group Incorporated. All rights reserved. For more, check out ryanjesperson.com.